evidence and answers. Has the mainstream evangelical church been captivated by a different gospel than what is taught in the New Testament? What is this new prosperity gospel? How do we know if our church has embraced it? How can we get the church back on the right track? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat and his guest, Dean Insera, will discuss the new prosperity gospel and how it perverts the true message of the gospel of Christ. Now, with part one of this interview, is Pat Zucaran. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges Christians face today. Well, has the mainstream evangelical church been captivated by a different gospel than what is taught in the New Testament? If so, what is this new gospel, and how do we know if our church has embraced it? And how can we get the church back on the right track? Well, to help us address this issue is Pastor Dean Insera. He's the founder and lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And Dean has written a great book here called Getting Over Yourself. So, Dean, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm really grateful to be on the program today. Well, Dean, we're talking about your book today, Getting Over Yourself. First, tell us, what is this book about and why did you feel necessary to write such a book? Well, I'm seeing this new phenomena that I refer to as the new prosperity gospel, or maybe a soft prosperity gospel, really infiltrate a lot of uh, Western mainstream Christian culture. I know it's extended beyond that, too, really across the world, uh, where the messaging is packaged very well, branded very well, very slick, very savvy. uh, And it's a message that is not telling you that God's going to make you healthy and wealthy, like the traditional prosperity gospel. It is more one that tells you that God exists to kind of fulfill your dreams, uh, to kind of help you reach your potential in life. He's almost as if he's a life coach uh, that inspires you to worldly greatness. And it's really captivating to a lot of people. It's all over social media, and it really elevates ourselves as the center of the universe and as if God is in the business of helping us achieve that. Now, you state in your book that this is mainstream. You, you state that mainstream Christianity is preaching this message. In fact, there's a term in there. It's real catchy, Instagramification. And you say this is mainstream in Christianity in America today. Is that true? Yeah, and that's the way that maybe uh, can help people kind of decipher between the traditional old, well-known prosperity gospel and this newer one, it's the prosperity gospel when it comes to mainstream packaging, the old traditional one. It's still, it's still a bit they haven't gone away, but it can sometimes be uh, maybe uh, dismissed as very fringe. And I know there's a lot of people in a lot of churches across the world who subscribe to it, uh, but a lot of people, especially where I live uh, here in the lower 48 United States, can kind of push that away as just kind of, hey, that's a fringe, that's an extreme version. This right here, this new prosperity gospel, has really infiltrated into popular Christianity, uh, where the pastors, the messengers, are uh, are really very popular on Instagram. They have very quotable sayings that people post, and it really is designed. Uh, they're really kind of like celebrities, and they design themselves as these kind of celebrity Christians that are here to inspire you towards what they refer to as greater things. And it's definitely not a fringe type of movement. It's right on the mainstream of much, especially of younger generational Christianity. Yes, you know, in fact, let me uh, read a quote, and you can comment on a quote from your book here. It says, to many professing Christians, Jesus has become a success guru who 
dispensive positive thoughts to help them get the next big promotion. The victories this Jesus gives do not involve overcoming sin, but rather come through the lens of the American dream, success, empowerment, motivation, and personal fulfillment. Comment on that quote there. Definitely. Well, Jesus is, is viewed and comes across as the type of means to an end. And that end is our personal ambitions being realized, or at least the feelings of our personal ambitions being realized. And so now Jesus, rather than a Lord to be worshipped, and I'm not saying they never worship him, but rather than being presented as the Savior of the world, the, the one true king, he is presented without using this type of language, but the, the implication is as a type of life coach, uh, where things such as maybe not reaching your potential or settling for something, that's what's viewed as being bad in this popular level New Prosperity Gospel, where the biggest issue isn't sin, uh, the biggest issue is not worldliness in their eyes or idolatry. Uh, instead, it is falling short of what they view as God's best for you. And by that, they don't mean the life of walking with the Lord. They don't mean your sanctification. What they mean is you basically being happy and you having all your dreams fulfilled. And again, from a worldly perspective, who wouldn't be drawn to that? It's not offensive. doesn't bring any conviction with it. Any conviction they might have is more of a kind of pull up your bootstraps and go work harder and go chase your dreams and have more faith uh, more than repent and believe the gospel. So I'm very, very worried about this. I mean, obviously I wrote a book about it because of it, uh, but I'm just really burdened over what it's doing to the gospel and making it a very human-centered gospel. You know what else it does? Uh, that's really troubling to me, and I hope this resonates and makes sense to everyone. I can almost summarize it this way, in that it is inferring that the lusts we had and desires we had before we came to faith in Christ should still be there after we come to faith in Christ, such as the desire to be, to be you know, known and to be celebrated and for our own success and our own achievements and, and, and happiness in the moment that all those type of things should still be top-level desires for us after our conversion, when really those are self-centered things of this world that we turn away from and repent of. And we have to be aware of this phenomena in the church and have to talk about it. Yes, First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And it seems like, you know, too many of us are in love with this present world and not living for eternity. Oh, definitely. I mean, think about this. The lust of the eyes, that's I want to have that. Uh, lust of the flesh, I want to feel that. Pride in one possession, one's possessions, I want to show that to the world that I have all these things, that I have it together, that I'm successful. Look at my things. Look at my accomplishments. And these are not, again, they're not of God. They're of the world, yet those things are being celebrated. They just use some Christian language and sprinkle some Bible verses on it and do it in a very motivational, passionate type of way, and usually accompany it with really good, engaging music uh, that's often even very solid music, and all those things are packaged together so the onlooking eyes says, oh, this is a good thing. Look, we're singing about Jesus, and people are here, and people are really engaged in the service, and so we mistaken that as being legitimate when really we're almost celebrating the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. And it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> What's happening here? But if no one says anything about it because you're viewed as being sort of, you know, disunifying or divisive or too nitpicky. That's not what this is. 
This is worldliness masquerading as Christianity. Yes. You write in your book, you know, what goes on in these kind of churches. And you kind of described it there and what you're saying. They're exciting. You got the lights going, outstanding music and very charismatic kind of preaching. But tell us a little bit more of what these churches are like, because, I mean, you walk into them, it feels great. The message feels great. Walk out of there, you know, feeling emotionally charged. But you talk about it similar to being like a marketing convention or maybe an Amway convention or something. Describe that for us a little bit. I have a chapter in the book called The Shenanigans. Yes. It's uh, to uh-huh. help one understand what goes on inside one of these. What you're going to see is things done very well, which I'm all for that. You know, like an excellent, you could say maybe presentation, a lot of work on atmosphere and environment, very engaging place to be. You're going to have a band come out that's very talented, very inspiring songs, you know, even like almost like celebrity level at times, songs on the radio. Uh, and then from there, and that's all good and fine, too. Great. Here we go. And then the messaging is my issue. The pastor comes out, and you would think he is someone at a you know sort of multi-level marketing type of rally. And those happen a lot. Maybe you'll see your friend on social media attending one uh, where they take the top sellers and producers of a product, and they fly them out to some arena, and they have their big annual convention, and everybody celebrates the product. They motivate you to go sell more, and it's all kind of motivational you know, kind of messaging and and speaking uh, kind of talking points. Uh, And if you just went to one of those and and watched how people were and the messaging and just added a little Christian language to it, like faith, God, hope, you know, persevere, overcome, I mean, things like that, you would have really not much difference to one of these churches, minus the Christian music, than you would at one of these sort of gatherings. It's kind of like a pep rally for yourself to be more motivated yet God is the one that's be doing the cheerleading in this type of idea. Rather than really talk about sin, instead they're just going to focus on the word brokenness. Now, brokenness is definitely a Christian word and a Christian concept, and we need to be well aware of the brokenness of this world as a result of the fall and a result of the reality of sin. But the way they describe brokenness is just simply something to be overcome. So they're not going to go there with sin because that's too offensive, and it might keep someone from coming in their eyes or offend someone or make them want to leave. So instead, we're just going to kind of have this generic, oh, we're all just so broken, we're all just so broken, and God wants to piece you together, not to redeem you and restore you and make you his own and adopt you into his family, as the scriptures say. You know, I think they would believe that. I want to be fair. Uh, but the real messaging, though, they're presenting is he wants to do this in order to you know, make you reach your potential and, and, and make you great and uh, to, you know, fulfill your dreams. And, and it's that, that type, your destiny. They love the word destiny. And those are the type of words they're using. And it's like, I don't see that being tied to brokenness in the scriptures. But that's how they package it, how they message it. So you can tell how it's very captivating. Yes, and I think you bring up a good point. I mean, one of the things Second Peter and Jude talk about is that false teaching comes with a mixture of truth. So there's enough scriptures in there and some truth in there, but false teaching comes packaged with a mixture of some truth in there. And that can be difficult for Christians to discern when the message is going off. Yes, or it can make Christians defensive about it, to where because there are a few positive things happening, and I talk about that. I'm not saying there's nothing positive that happens Uh here, but because there are a few things, they dismiss the rest. It's, oh, well, look what's happening you know, people are coming to know Christ, and, and, and so they're sort of kind of having that response rather than going, wait a second here, what are they being reached to? 
Because if you're being reached to a new prosperity gospel, it's about you and your potential and your dreams and your you know, fulfillment and ambition than whatever destiny means, your destiny, then I, I'm scared you're being one to that. You're, if you're being reached with that, then you're being reached to that. And what makes it makes it really kind of difficult is it's so foreign uh, from the call to follow Christ in the Scriptures, which is one of self-denial, picking up one's cross, following Christ, uh, turning from your old life to your new. Someone came and, and Jesus told them if he wanted to inherit eternal life, he needed to sell all his possessions. Jesus is trying to help him, undersee, help him understand that was an idol in his life. That was his true God, and the person wouldn't do that. Jesus didn't tell the person, oh, it's okay, you know, we'll accept you anyways, keep your stuff. <laughs> you know, the whole point was him going, no, this guy would not respond to Christ because instead he wanted to live for the world. He wanted to live for himself. And this messaging, that's what's really happening. But since it uses Christian language and there are occasional good things that happen, we miss it all together. One, like you said, either we're not discerning, or two, we see it, but we're defensive about it because we don't want to feel as if we're dismissing you know, something that the Lord is doing, something along those lines. Let's talk about that a little bit. Some people might be sitting out there saying, well, what's wrong with that, Dean? I mean, people are coming to Jesus. Families, marriages are getting better. So what's really the big deal? But I think you hit upon something that is really important here. What is the message they are one to? And what happens when you don't get that promotion? Your child has cancer. Family member dies in an accident. Or you see what's going on you know, in the world today, persecution or whatever. So tell us, some people sitting there saying, yeah, yeah but what's wrong with that? Expound on that a little bit more. That's really important. I think this could be the biggest issue and what you just described. And I think we have a disciple. See, we haven't seen the full ramifications of this yet because it's fairly new. This new prosperity gospel, it's kind of generational. And I believe it's setting people up for a faith crisis. Now, of course, the traditional prosperity gospel does that, too, when you, you know, go show up at a, some kind of meeting with your cancer and your cancer doesn't get healed. Uh, but this is going to be different because what happens to these people to when they're now 35 years old and they're living an ordinary life? Now, the ordinary life this should be normal and should be expected. The new prosperity pop Christianity, it's almost it's frowned upon. It's viewed as settling uh, for not God's best for you. Uh, so I really worry there's going to be a faith crisis because this gospel has no category for suffering, has no category for trials outside of that God wants to use your trials to bring you back for something greater. But the scriptures, God's using our trials, James 1, you know, to build us, to build us in the faith right, to mature us, to make us more like Jesus. But this messaging is that the trials in your life are only for, they like to use language, that God is going to use your setback for a comeback. That's how they word it. And the comeback means, like, to go be even better. You know, it's kind of like, oh, we were down in the second quarter of the football game, and now we're going to get motivated to come back and play better in the second half is sort of how they view it. And again, that's not the scriptural understanding of trials and suffering. God takes these things to mold us and make us more like Jesus, not to set us up to be better at something. So that's what happens there. And I'm just really worried that what's going to happen when you find you, you thought you were going to do move and live in New York City and make a lot of money and you know live in a high-rise apartment and be a celebrity, and now you live in your hometown and work a basic job and have a normal spouse and a regular family and rather than being a wonderful thing to be celebrated and to praise God for, it can be looked down as the fact that uh, you settled for less. What a bad story. And that's the messaging, though, that really worries me. Right. Uh, you stated in your book that the greatest sin 
may not be stated but may be implied, is not reaching your, quote, full potential in life. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, by that they don't mean your full potential in Christ, you know, that we were to be presented fully mature and to, to grow and not to be unfinished towers, you know, as Jesus talked about. Uh, not that kind of potential. We're, we're, we're just talking about our sanctification of being presented fully mature, of being, you know, maybe being qualified to be an elder or a deacon or something along those lines. We're not talking about that. It means basically your talents, and, and by talents, your worldly skills. So the worst thing in the new prosperity gospel is settling. How they view, but the way they define settling is basically anything less than your ultimate fulfillment and feelings in life. And usually it's tied to things like having a platform, being well-known. Uh, if you notice, most of the people who uh, expound this message, are uh, they're very attractive physically. They dress very wealthy, very high-end clothing. And, and that is almost like the goal, like, like to get to that place. Uh, so the way that they are, are viewing God making you and shaping you is preparing you for greatness, how they would view it, rather than God trying to make you the purpose of us being more like Christ. That's the reality of what's taking place. Yes. Now, you're talking about discipleship and what it means to be a true disciple of Christ and the call of discipleship in the New Testament. So tell us a little bit, what is that New Testament call of discipleship and what does it mean to be a disciple and how it differs from this new prosperity gospel here? Yeah, it moves. The, it's, it's not as simple as just going, OK, Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that I receive that. Praise the Lord. You know, that's definitely step one, right? But, you know, I realize I'm a sinner, that I'm in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the only way to God. He is the one. He's the mediator between God and man. Uh, that's obviously where the Christian journey begins, that realization, turning to Christ. But then, to me, the mark of a disciple is really where the understanding starts to happen is in John the Baptist's encounter with Christ. If anybody had a platform at the time, I know he was an eccentric guy and a different kind of character, but it's John the Baptist. Right, he had a following. Even the fact that people were confused, thinking they were being baptized into John's name. Right, he was on the scene. If anyone had something to lose, and that Jesus would have been a threat to, it could have been John the Baptist. So when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist knew exactly who he was, both due to family ties and also due to John the Baptist's true calling in life to prepare the way for the Lord. And what does John say? He doesn't say, "Hey, let's go do this together." He says, "I must decrease." He's like, Jesus, he's the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He says, I, I can't even wear his sandals. I'm unworthy of it. He must increase, I must decrease. The new prosperity gospel is fine with Jesus increasing as long as we get to increase with him too. <laughs> as long as we get to do that as well. Yeah, like, let, let God have all the have glory, but I want to have some I want to share some of that with you. When John's response was, Wow, I, I must decrease. So what is discipleship? I think it's dying to ourselves every day. I heard an old evangelist say that every Christian should attend a funeral every single day, and that funeral's their own. Paul wrote, I die daily. Uh, so discipleship is more than just self-denial, but it's definitely not less. And there's no self-denial whatsoever in this messaging of the new prosperity gospel, which to me means there's little discipleship outside of uh, an experience. That's how they would view discipleship, is kind of feeling God, uh, experiencing God uh, in a way that is very dependent upon excellent music and an inspirational message uh, more than just the scriptures themselves. Yes. You know, one of the things about people that work on staff in these kinds of churches, and I've been a guest speaker in some of these churches, and wow, it's it's a really stressful Sunday behind the stage there. I mean, 
you got people screaming and yelling, you know, 15 seconds, we're on, we're on, you know, we're on TV or whatever. The, the film is rolling, 15 seconds. Or the worship leader saying, you guys are off key, you know, get it straight, get the, wow, it was really stressful being back up there because a lot of emphasis is put on, like you said, building that experience uh, on that Sunday morning. I mean, I see the lights guy running around screaming and yelling at the lights guy. You know, this light is off. That lighting is, it needs to get darker here and all of that. And it's a really stressful experience to build that experience you're talking about. Yeah. And I have to guard my own heart against that too, because, you know, we're a large church and we have, you know, the band, the lights, and you want it to sound good and look good and those kind of things. But I got to guard my, my when you saying that, I was like, man, I got to guard my own heart against that, you know, I mean, just to be transparent. But here's the problem is they hide the excuse for everything. They hide behind the word excellent. Right. So that's the excuse for everything. Rather than just, hey, I think excellence means that you're giving, you know, God, you're, you're trying to do all you can for God's glory, right? That, that you're working not unto man, but unto the Lord. Uh, so you're trying to do things the best of your ability uh, because you believe that God has given you these gifts. So you want to use them and not be lazy, not, you know, not, you know, want to be faithful to those things. It's not meant to be look at us or cut throat or... Or anything like that. I mean, I've heard of staff meetings where the pastor, you know, yells at people in the yes. staff meeting because they yes. do things the right way. Uh-huh. And, and my question is, this is not a very deep thought, but it's just an honest reflection, is how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the point where that's how we view church, you know, and that's how we view the gathering of God's people? And I think when it really became a, a consumer kind of mindset where it became about a show, and it came, and we started viewing church. Some people call their worship services experiences. I'm not going to bend out of shape too much just about wording, but that's kind of revealing, isn't it? Like when we see church that way as an experience, I mean, I have an experience when I go to a secular concert or I go to a football game or I go to a basketball game, right? I have an experience at those things. That's why I go, right? There's an experience when you go to a movie. There's an experience when you go in here and where I live in Florida to Disney World. So I just want to make sure that I don't view church the same way as that. There's simply an experience for my own consumption. And then when you're on staff, then it becomes about getting out the product, right? And we don't want to see ourselves as, as making a product. We want to see ourselves coming together as a church to worship Christ. You can do that and have those values that it really is about Christ and it's not about consumption and still value wanting to do things in an excellent manner. It, it can be both, but it's hard to find that balance. Yeah, that is one of the questions I was going to ask you. Uh, you know, how did we get into this situation? And I think you hit one very important point, and that was consumerism. And we had uh, Dr. Oz Guinness here at our conference here in Hawaii, and he made a statement that really surprised many of us. He said, consumer, he said, modernity, modernity has done more damage to the Christian church than all the persecutions of world history combined. And so I asked him, I said, can you expound on that a, a little bit? And he said, Consumerism, for example, consumerism is a product of modernity. And he said, the shopping malls, as he speaks in his very elegant way, the shopping malls are now the cathedrals of worship uh, here in the West. And we have that shopping mall mentality when it comes to finding a church and settling down into a church. So talk about that a little bit, that consumer mentality that we have and how that has affected how pastors do ministry now. Well, well, to be and for my generation younger, it's the internet, right? It's online shopping, mm. more than it's a shopping mall, right? It's one. <laughs> it's, it's customized messaging, 
right? It's targeted ads. You know, I can always customize my exact own experience, and people now view church as no different. You know, give me the exact sermon I want, the music I want, let it be this amount length of time, and make sure my kids are entertained, and then we'll hit the road. Well, with that comes a lack, ultimately. Uh, so the institution has kind of gone away. You know, now, again, we're not going to the mall. We're not, we'll, we'll, buy, we'll buy clothes, you know, for different places, um, different sites. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit of brand loyalty, but not what it used to be. Uh, so we're just kind of not having any hope at institutions anymore. And sadly, that affects the church. There's a lack of loyalty to a local church. There's a lack of passion towards it, uh, a lack of buy-in uh, to the mission, uh, where it really is just kind of about me. And if that's the case, I can get my own fulfillment not going to church after a while in my own eyes. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. So for the opportunity to donate, Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrat. Hey, 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 hey.